Bannon. Cut to. Exterior. Interior. Restaurant. Bar. Club. Day. Night. Action! Good morning, everyone. We are winding down 2021. These episodes on restaurant fiction are getting bigger and better. I'm not going to lie that today's guest is a wowzer. It's a holy guacamole. I mean, holy mother of Moses. We have none other than Kira Snyder, who is a writer, producer, co-showrunner of the upcoming HBO show Demamonde. She has written Pacific Rim 2. Yeah, that awesome movie. Alphas, Eureka, The 100, and Today, she is going to be talking about her show, the show that she is a part of, The Handmaid's Tale. Oh, what are you listening to? Who am I? I forgot. Well, guess what? This is Restaurant Fiction, the podcast that reviews every fictional restaurant, bar, and club, and TV, and film. I am your host, my name is Monis Rose. Now, The Handmaid's Tale, well, guess what? It really doesn't technically have a one restaurant, a said bar or coffee shop, but food is so prevalent in the world of the Gilead. Yeah, that's right. That Margaret Atwood's world that has now, it is the world on Hulu, this amazing, amazing Emmy award-winning show. Well, food is so prevalent and so guess what? Restaurant Fiction had to go inside the Gilead, had to review the food, and had a chat with Kara Snyder, one of the writers, one of the execs on the show. Okay, enough. Here is our review of the food inside the Gilead and our fireside chat, our one-on-one with Kara Snyder. Go. Guys, gals, monsters, big feet, dinosaurs, aliens from the 12,000th dimension out there. Um, you know, restaurant fiction, we usually like to be have some fun uh, with the food that we review in the restaurants we go to. But, you know, sometimes there are those times where we have to put on that journalistic hat, that journalistic cap. And what are we trying to say? That we have to be almost an observer. We have to go into a world that might we might not like personally, but we have to have that journalistic uh, mindset. Kind of like if the journalism, uh, a journalist, excuse me, was going into a war zone, you know, um, they, they have to report. And the world that we are going into, it is the Gilead. It is a uh, it is a society where, uh, let's just say, for those of you not familiar, uh, women do not have a lot of rights, and it is uh, very ultra-religious in their own rules. But obviously, that's neither here nor there, because Restaurant Fiction's job is to report on the food, and that is what we're going to stick with. I know there are other cases with the and with the food, every single piece of food, we feel is um, a metaphor for something. It is a way of speaking out. It is, you know, a symbolism of something. It is even an act of uh, defiance all in the food. Now, you know, there is the, the food in general. It is very, very simple. 
Um, everything is almost practically homemade. You know, the bread, you know, there are no uh, preservatives. And I guess that is a positive, if you will. You know, like the bread is just flour, yeast, butter. I mean, the eggs, uh, whether you want to make more of it, are fresh. And uh, the handmaids are um, yelled at and scolded if they are not fresh. You know, I mean, the a grocery store, which um, has like, I believe it's called like fish and loaves or something like that, a uh, biblical term, a biblical reference, uh, sometimes carries uh, fish, you know, and that might be um, a positive thing that the food is fresh, but really, uh, we, we do not think so. And the reason for this, and really, we are going to give the, the food in general of the Gilead actually a, a very bad review. And we, we usually don't because of this notion. You see, for those of you guys out there from Restaurant Fiction, I, I was a former chef. And when I would make things, when I was in a bad mood, when I was either sad or angry or really just PO'd with the world, and even though my recipes were awesome and the R&D, I've spent years in R&D and they were perfect. But the food did not taste good. And when I was in a good mood filled with positivity and love and effervescence and all of that, and I made the exact same recipe, nothing was different. The temperature, the climate, everything, it just was better. To use that example into the Gilead, you see, there is no love with the food that is made. There is no love with the food that is bought. And even if you are getting the best of the best of the best with the highest of the quality, it's never really going to taste good. So unfortunately, you know, if you have the opportunity to go in a free zone like in Canada, well, go please, because the food is at least going to be uh, have love, even if it is filled with preservatives. All right. Well, anyway, that is our little quick review of the food in general of the Gilead. Obviously, there's a lot of food represented in that, a lot of places. We are talking uh, to one of the uh, chief writers of the show, The Handmaid's Tale, Kara Snyder. Uh, Kara, uh, what do you have to add? What do you have to say? What is your rebuttal on that review of the food of The Handmaid's Tale? You know, I don't have much to rebut because I think you make an excellent point. I mean, the I had actually not really thought about it uh, in the way that you phrased it, but I think it's I think you put it beautifully. There is no love in the way that food is grown, prepared, shot for in Gilead. If food in in you know, food plays lots of roles, as is in our world, it plays lots of roles in The Handmaid's Tale, but chiefly it's a means to reinforce structure and control. And that doesn't sound like a recipe for a lovely, light, delicious meal. So even though on the good column, this is a very short column for the for the powers that be in Gilead. It's a very short plus column. They have cleaned up the environment, right? So they uh, everything is clean and healthy, free range everything except for the people. People are not free range. So all the ingredients are great, and they really dive into the wholesomeness of the food they have to prepare. But as you say, you know it's it's harvested by an enslaved population. Out, you know, out and we we never really showed them on screen, but we had talked about these colonies, these scary colonies that exist. There are chemical colonies cleaning things up, but there's also farming colonies, you know, harvesting harvesting the food. It's gathered in an enslaved circumstance. It's shopped for by the handmaids, as you pointed out. You know, that's one of their one of their treats is they get to go out with a shopping partner and go to this supermarket, which is creepy as as all get out because there's music and the store's shelves are filled, but there's no words because women are not allowed to read. So 
on the show, the, the the production design team had to put a lot of thought into those labels. If you ever see one of those cans close up, they have all the information you would need about what's in there and how much is in there. Um, numbers are okay, but there's no words on them. So this this place that feels kind of normal at first glance is, again, very oppressive and very structured. And then the Marthas, another enslaved population, they're the ones who prepare the food. My, my mom and my dad, but my mom in particular is a really great cook, really great baker. So I grew up with like fresh bread growing, being made in the house and that amazing smell of fresh bread. And it came from, as you pointed out earlier, it came from a space of, of love and nourishment. And then these poor women, these poor Marthas, they are making bread because that's what the power structure decides is wholesome and good for you. Uh, and yeah, there's, there's, there's no love to be, to be found in any bite. So, yeah, I, I can't rebut very much. I think you're spot on the money in your review. You know, speaking of all the food scenes in The Hammy Sale, what is your favorite food scene? There are so many that I really, really love. But my favorite scene is one that kind of points up just kind of the, the structure and the control aspect that I was talking about. So it's a scene in the most recent season, season four, which is all available now on Hulu. And it's an episode four called Milk. And there's a character named Rita, who is one of these Martha. She's the one that we actually see her in the very first episode making the bread that I talked about. That's not by choice. You know, she is she is enslaved to this family. In season four, though, she has gotten to freedom. She's in Canada. And she's having trouble kind of separating herself from this Gilead life that she's had. She's kind of struggling with that. So she kind of falls into habits. We see her at the beginning of the episode making bread for a guest because she's still kind of very chopped in that mindset. And at the end of the episode, this is my favorite scene, she's kind of gone through, kind of stood up for herself and then had, had a moment of a confrontation with the, the, the two people who were her, basically her owners in, back in Gilead because they're now in prison in Canada. At the end of the episode, it's this beautiful little wordless episode. She sits down at her kitchen table and she opens up some sushi, takeout sushi and a Diet Coke. And she just eats this meal with this lovely smile on her face, a meal that someone else prepared. And she is just enjoying, she's enjoying her food for probably the first time in a very, very long time. So, um, and going off, so kind of like um, with one of the uh, first episodes that you wrote in the first season, Jezebel. And for those uh, who are not familiar with this particular episode, obviously we're still um, introducing Offred into this world. We're introducing the audience into this world and um Alfred, um the character is going outside of her house she is getting dressed up and she's going almost into this sophisticated whorehouse uh basically it is uh, where all of the commanders get to take off that and be even sleazier than sleazy um and it's almost like this very risque naughty eyes wide shut grossness but anyway besides that you have Offred drinking, you pick her like she drinks a Manhattan. Like she is asked, she she is given one of a, you know a choice, and she's like, and she just chooses a Manhattan. What does a Manhattan say about Offred, especially then what we know about her? It's such an interesting kind of moment and thing that you picked up because it, it is one of the very very few times that we see people in Gilead, anyone in Gilead, at kind of like a, a restaurant or a bar. Basically, that, that kind of doesn't really exist so much in, in the world. We see it a little bit later on when um, the Waterfords, the, the couple that own Offer that are uh, keeping her captive and, and Rita as well. When they go to Washington, D.C., there's kind of a, a place for the elites. But basically, people eat at home. They don't, they don't go out. So the idea of going out is a weird kind of flashback to a, a pre-Gilead world. In this particular place, Jezebel, which you point out very accurately, 
you know, it's a brothel for for the commanders, where yet more women are enslaved there um, as, as sex workers. It's kind of a fantasy. In our version of Gilead, it's, it's not it's not really a teetotaling place. Like people can drink at home. Yeah, you know, the men, of course, have more uh, license to do things. But you know, you we see even the wives having champagne at a, at one of the birth scenes. But the commanders, they can you know have they can have their scotches, they can have their whatever. And so this is a little bit of an extension of that. So it's 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 a fantasy where they can you know have cocktails and well, I don't think we actually showed in that scene, but in earlier versions there was like a restaurant and it could have a big steak dinner and it's a, just a chance to indulge all the senses and then the women there in particular. So so for Alfred and so handmaid because their whole reason for being is to get pregnant are never allowed any alcohol at all. So it's a little naughty for him to offer, hey, do you want a drink? And it's, I mean, they're, they're breaking so many rules and going to this place. It's very illegal for handmaids to be at this place. He's basically smuggled her in. And so she's, because it's a fantasy, none of these women want to be there. None of these women are interested in these men, but they have to pretend because it means their lives, right? And so Offred is very keenly aware that she has to play along with the fantasy that the commander that has brought her there wants for, for that evening with them. So she plays along. She's kind of flirty. It's not because she's really into him. It's because she's kind of like, you know, playing this role to protect her life. And part of that is playing the fiction of ordering a drink at the bar. So I chose Manhattan personally. Well, firstly, because it's, it's one of my favorite drinks. <laughs> I love a good Manhattan. And also because it's it, to the point earlier when we were talking about Rita, it feels like from the before times, you know, it speaks of urbanity and sophistication. You know, she didn't get something like she didn't get like a really froofy drink or like a like a terrible like you know jello shot or a, some kind of like terrible shooter like it's a, it's a classy cocktail right so it's something that she I think I think June you know who's which is Alfred's real name I think June liked Manhattan's in the before time so it's you know it's partially playing along with a fantasy partially her like you know <laughs> she definitely needs a drink in that moment because she's scared half out of her wits and also because like I said I I enjoy a good Manhattan of an evening. There are obviously happy food-related moments, and usually, you know, those happier times is when it's a nice flashback. So when we get to see June and Luke meeting, they meet over hot dogs. You know, it's 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 a fun, it's a more fun time. Um, what is you know that food for you that brings you back to the halcyon days, like that just brings that smile on your face? Yeah, I sort of thinking about things like the you know the, the kind of the, you know, the flashback food. I, I think about I, I think about the food that I had in my kind of in my house growing up. I mean, it's it's everything from the comfort food, like when I'm having a rough day, like a grilled cheese sandwich, like that's that was one of my dad's specialties that like kind of puts me right back in my happy place. But also just, you know, so I, I grew up in a Navy family. My dad is a retired naval officer, so we, we lived all over the world. And so I really credit my, my parents, both of whom are definitely foodies, lifelong appreciation for global cuisine starting at a very, very young age. So, you know, I think about favorite childhood meals. It's not just things like uh, grilled cheese and, and, and burgers, which are obviously classic. You know, we lived in the Philippines for a while. So I remember a, f- a favorite childhood meal would be like lumpia and pancit and pork adobo. That's before I stopped eating meat. I don't know. I don't know if you could make adobo out of tofu, maybe. That meal in particular definitely takes me back to, uh, to, to you know, being a kid and, and, and you know, being with my family. All right, so this is uh, moving on here. So role-playing, I'm the head of a studio network, and I'm saying to you, uh, Carrie, you have carte blanche to do any original show, any original idea, but it has to center on a fictional restaurant you're 
dream fictional restaurant that you have to create? What is the Kara Snyder dream fictional restaurant to set your TV show or movie around? And you, yeah, but you have to have one rule. Interesting. What a, what a great question. Yeah. There's so many different directions this could go in. You know, I, I, my, my mind certainly goes to the way kind of restaurants and food scenes are used in, in some of my favorite science fiction, you know, movies and shows. I mean, you know, the, you know, the cantina most Eisley, and you know, we were, we were emailing about the, um, the mess hall scene in, in galaxy quest, which I, which I really love. There's definitely fun sci-fi fantasy kind of things to play with, but I think my, my, my dream, dream restaurant, I actually wrote into one of my YA novels. I have a, a series of young adult novels that are interactive supernatural mysteries. So there's certain choice points you can like choose for the lead character, you know, what clues to follow and what friends she makes. But it's set in New Orleans, which is, um, as, as you noted when we were emailing, it's, 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 a, it's an amazing food city. As I mentioned before, I'm a vegetarian. And that is a place, uh, New Orleans has this wonderful food, and but they really, really do love their meat. And I, I totally get that. I totally respect that. In this book series, our lead character is a teenager, and her mom is a chef. Her mom opens a restaurant called uh, Mon Petit Chou, which is a French term of endearment, means my little cabbage. And it is a vegetarian Southern restaurant. So it's 100% vegetarian. And so in this book, I just got to make up and adapt all these recipes that I've never actually been able to have because all that wonderful food, so much of it is reliant on its, you know, the, the, the amazing sausage, the amazing seafood. With the, with the carte blanche, uh, knowing that there's a whole universe I would love to explore, I think just personally, just because I would want to wish it into existence, this uh, vegetarian Southern uh, New Orleans restaurant, Mon Petit Chou, that, that would be my dream. Are you, uh, no, obviously it's YA, but for the adults that explore this restaurant, are there going to be hurricanes, Sazeracs, Manhattans, you know, Menjula? 100%, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yes. Hurricanes, Ducarets. <laughs> I, I don't care for the licorice flavor, so no sazeracs for me, but they will for sure be on the menu. And the other thing that would be that would be for the adults, probably more than the kids, is, and again, I put this in one of these books, New Orleans, as you may know, has this kind of amazing local tradition on Christmas called the Réveillon Dinner. Are you familiar with this? No, I'm not, actually. Yeah, so, so, the, so the Réveillon Dinner is a, a traditional dinner that is held after midnight mass on Christmas Eve. So midnight mass goes on for however long that takes, and then afterwards there's this dinner, and the, the, the characteristic of the dinner is that it has dinner items and also breakfast items because it's super late, obviously, getting into early morning, and, the, and then the celebration often goes into morning. So you, it's an opportunity to have um, all the amazing dinner time dishes, but also, like, Biscuits and gravy, you know, fried chicken, or fried "quote unquote" chicken. So, the, so the Revion dinner is is something that this fictional restaurant does serve in, in one of my books, and absolutely would serve if it existed in real life. You know, in the series that you're talking about, it's called Postmortem. Am, am I correct? The series, uh, post, yeah, the Postmortem is a, is, the, is the title of one of the books. So, yeah, it, the first book in the series is called Dead Letter Office. The series is called the Parish Mail series. There's there's three in the books. They're all kind of holiday themed. Dead Letter Office is Halloween themed. Postmortem is the second one that is uh, kind of Thanksgiving, homecoming weekend themed. And then there's one called Seasons Greetings, which is a novella, and that's a Christmas thing one. And that's where the Revion Dinner makes its appearance. You know, you put this awesome fictional restaurant in your YA novels, and you know, how do you make say a restaurant or a bar more like a character in and of itself, rather than just a place for characters to talk, rather than just a interior bar, a so-and-so mm-hmm. in our main character flirt, and they flicker their eyes. Yeah. 
It's such a good question because I will see often in scripts that I read from you know, younger writers, you know, emerging writers, and they will do that. They'll say interior hotel, you know, night or interior bar night. And I think where the mistake happens there, and, and it's honestly it's a missed opportunity for story, is honestly the more specific you can get and the more that the, the place is telling a story about the characters in it, kind of the better it is. Like one, one restaurant that really comes to mind is the, the hilarious restaurant in Always Be My Maybe where Ali Wong and Randall Park go with Keanu Reeves. <laughs> It's this crazy, like pretentious place, and like like Keanu Reeves like gets to hear a recording of the meat that he's eating before it died, and it's just it's so hilarious and over the top, like super duper modernist cuisine. So it says so much about you know all those characters and how they enjoy this. And so that specific thing, like that could have easily been like an interior restaurant night, but like they because that whole movie is very much about food and, and she's she's a chef. But I think in any other any other context, that specificity is like it really, really helps. It really helps make it um grounded. So there's a big difference between, you know, a hotel bar. Like my husband and I, we are we're big fans of hotel bars and LA has, you know, a, a, just a, an amazing collection of hotel bars. Between between that and like, you know, like a neighborhood dive that has peanut shells on the floor. Like these are really, really different places. Different types of people go there. Depending on who your character is, they may or may not feel at home there. They may not know, you know, if, if it's one of those like fine dining places with this crazy array of you know dishes, of, you know, physical dishes, plates, and, and silverware. They may not understand how to how to work with that. You know, you think about in the movie Titanic how how Jack has to kind of get coached by Molly Brown and how to how to use the all the silverware. You know, all these choices are really specific. So you know, I and I really try to do that in my in my own writing. It's like fine. Like, like with Moon Petit Shoe, like, you know, find something specific and, and gets to character and location um, about when you're doing a restaurant uh, or a bar. Because generic just isn't really interesting. You know, generic really, it ends up being kind of bland. And you know, just take, taking the time to like either put it in the slug line or put it in the description, like, you know, make a clear choice, whether it's based on something like that you know and like from your own life that might be appropriate for this character or, or something kind of fantastical and made up. That that I think is you know is uh, is is the way to go. I was reading recently about there is a brewery in this small town in this Chilean high desert. It's a desert, so they don't have a lot of water. And this this um, beer is brewed from condensation they get by collecting fog. So they have these crazy kind of sci-fi like sail type devices that catch the morning fog, collect the condensation, and so that basically this. Fog turns into beer and like, oh, that's so cool. Like, I can't wait to find something to use that in because it's a cool detail of like, it's not just any brewery, it's not just any bar, you know, the people that live there and work that way. It's so um, specific and, you know, located in that world. Um, I just find that fascinating. Whoa. And so say like, okay, let's role play with these. So say um, we were incorporating that into a sci-fi world, then maybe the fog would be spirits of some sort, kind of like in Scotland or in, you know, that when um, they're distilling the scotch in the barrels, you know, it uh, almost the scotch disintegrates and they say that's like the angel's share, kind of like the angels take it. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Yeah. I think, I think that's fascinating. It could just be like a cool detail of like a desert planet. Like you think about all the amazing desert planets in the star Wars universe and that, that could be a, a thing that happens there. Or, you know, just to kind of, kind of riff off what you were suggesting, if it's like a, like, a, like almost a more like a, like a horror movie or a thriller movie, it's like people are acting strange in this small town or people live forever in this small town. And you find out it's because it's the mists that are collected on these particular moors or, or whatnot, you know? 
So you mentioned, yes, you mentioned Galaxy Quest, you mentioned Moss Eisley, Cantina, which are different planets. So obviously you um, not just write sci-fi, you are a sci-fi aficionado, you know, from your um, old, old blog from hell, you even loved the sci-fi network when it was actually spelled, you know, S-C-I space F-I, not just, you know, SIFI, S-Y-F-Y as it is now. But no, anyway, I mean, from your opinion, um, as just a science fiction expert, we're going to call you uh, that, Kara, how important is, you know, the food in science fiction? Just because, you know, like for us, um, we've reviewed the uh, dinner table in Aliens. You know, we first see in the first John Hurt um, alien movie, you know, the alien popping out of the chest is on the dinner table. It's around everyone. You know, obvious, you know, Galaxy Quest. Um, it's one of the most comedic and memorable scenes when uh, Alan Rickman has to eat the goo and all of that. Or in Mos Eisley Cantina, we hear the Benny Goodman jazz with all of the assassins right here in this black and white area. It's the most colorful scene of the first Star Wars. Yeah, how important is the food in science fiction? Yeah, I think I think food, you know, it's it's this great, uni- I mean, literally, uni- in, this, in the case of sci-fi, it's this great universal thing, right? We all have to eat. Like we as creatures, you know, I mean, there are certainly some creatures that maybe don't, but, but it's so relatable. I mean, if we're, you know, we're human beings, we're watching this, you know, this TV show, this movie, um, we have to eat and sort of seeing how and where and under what circumstance um, people consume food or creatures consume food or prepare food in, in these other worlds. Um, it's just really relatable, you know, like part of the reason that that uh, scene in, in Alien is so horrifying and shocking is it, it comes at a very kind of collegial low-key time like hey they're you know they went through something weird everyone's fine this guy's doing great now they're enjoying their their, their spaghetti i think it is they're eating um and it feels it, and it's so shocking because it is a moment of you know safety and relaxation and camaraderie and then this horrible thing happens so so it, 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 it takes something that's familiar and it takes it in this this dramatic and and and, and scary scary direction and then in galaxy quest it, again it's really relatable because it's, you know, again, you know, they're, they, everyone has to eat. And the fact they've picked specific dishes for, you know, what they think the specific actual histories of, of these char- characters, actually the actors are, it, it also just speaks to like, you know, everyone has something different. Young Laredo has like a burger and fries, which is kind of a, a kind of a child's meal, which is what the character was. Of course, now he's, an, has, now he's an adult. So that specificity, um, including the, 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 what, I can't remember the name of the, 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 the goo or the worms that Elmer oh, yeah. has to eat. So just thinking about the world you're in and what kind of just realistically, what would happen, what would be there, you know, what would live there, um, what's the environment, how would you, you know, how would you cook if you don't, ha- if you live in a world that doesn't have like wood, for instance, you know, maybe your your stove doesn't burn wood, maybe it burns a certain kind of rock, or maybe there's some kind of like you know, laser situation. So uh, specificity, I feel like I'm using that word a lot, but I think that really is the key to making something grounded and also in a weird way, um, universal. Like when you make those really specific choices, it ends up being more relatable than if you had kind of just written something kind of broad or generic, I find. Kira, thank you. Thank you so, so much for everyone 
who wants to know more about Kira and what she is doing, what her thoughts are, well, guess what? She is very prevalent on the Twitterverse, the Twitter universe. You can look for her at Sugar Jones, S-U-G-A-R-J-O-N-Z-E. That's on Twitter. If you want to uh, watch, visually watch her writing, well, guess what? You can rent, buy, stream Pacific Rim 2 and all of her TV episodes from The Handmaid's Tale. We mentioned Jezebel, which was an episode so that she personally wrote. Uh, she was a writer on The 100, Alphas, Eureka, and the upcoming J.J. Abrams produced HBO. I believe it's either HBO or HB, HBO Max. I really don't know. I think they're all the same. Well, anyway, it's a show on that called Demamonde. I don't know when it's going to be released. I don't know when it's filming, but it's there. And it's going to be in your TVs, on your TVs, pretty, pretty darn soon. Anyway, this is the second to the last episode of 2021. We got even a bigger bang coming up. My name is Monis Rose. You know where to find me. You know how to stream me. All restaurant fiction, all different streaming platforms, Audible, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio. You know where. And as always, keep it real, keep it fresh, and keep it on the flip side. Cut to interior restaurant bar.